All right, let's hit record, shall we? Yeah. Or have you been recording this whole I've time? I've been recording. Have you been recording? No. Oh, come on, man. You can't You can't post what we just talked about. I, I, don't know, I can edit it out a little bit. No, you're right. Probably not. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Capolo. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you doing today? Doing pretty well. Um, happy to be back. Sorry we missed a week there. Uh, you were traveling as usual, right? Well, I was at the International Studies Association conference up in Montreal, Canada, for the the second part of the of the week. Very interesting conference. Uh, as always, lots going on. Lots of different uh, groups meeting. Every year, it seems like that conference just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So it used to be in the old days. I'm old enough to remember when you would go to that conference. It would be like in a hotel. And they would write out like the ballroom and the conference rooms and this and that. We are now at the point where it takes over like three whole whole hotels and conference rooms like in each of those hotels. And because the weather in Montreal for the days that I was there was unpleasant, it was like raining and, and cold and snowy and stuff. It made it really and windy, difficult to kind of like go from each of the hotels because they, they weren't like right next to each other, like three or four blocks away. But aren't they connected in like through underground tunnels so Montreal people don't have to go outside? I didn't find those tunnels. It's possible I was missing out on the tunnels. But I saw lots of political scientists walking down the street in the wind and the rain. So they didn't know about the tunnels either. And they certainly didn't advertise the tunnels. So it might just be for for locals. But anyway, it was a great conference. And I attended uh, lots of interesting uh, different panels and, you know, a lot of diplomacy type stuff. A lot of discussion about Ukraine, obviously, um, and what to do about it and what this means for international relations. And so it was a good it was a good conference. What about TikTok? Do you attend any TikTok related panels? I did not. I did not attend any TikTok panels, unfortunately. Well, I think we should talk about TikTok because there have been some developments. We kind of left off uh, a couple weeks ago uh, discussing TikTok and the risk of um, the use of TikTok for espionage or for data gathering purposes by China and the kind of political debate over whether TikTok should be banned. And since then, we've had some news that the Biden administration is kind of leaning toward pushing TikTok to be sold to a U.S. entity or else potentially be banned. And there's some legislation right now in Congress that would kind of authorize that that decision um, if the Biden administration decided to make it. And there's some of this is political maneuvering and the, 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 the TikTok CEO will be testifying before Congress um, coming up. And so there, there's some thought that maybe this is just an attempt to put pressure on TikTok to kind of reach some kind of a broader agreement for data storage and, and for making sure that China doesn't have access to, to U.S. Uh, data. But um, it's still kind of an escalation of, the, of this dispute. So as we were talking about last time, this is something that Trump administration tried to do and, and ultimately failed to do. Um, and then the Biden administration took a different tack here. But, you know, the question remains, like, is there any evidence that TikTok has used its position of being on all the American phones to do anything untoward? Or is this just kind of a speculative worry about what might happen in the future if we were in some kind of crisis with China in some way? Right. And as we talked about last time, I mean, it's a tricky situation because the United States wants and needs uh, investment, you know, from China. We want to have you know, lots of, of trade with China and, you know, FDI and stuff like that. But on the other hand, if you think there's a legitimate security risk uh, for what China's doing, then you got to do something about it. And you got to, I think, also kind of draw a line and say, we're just not going to tolerate any type of, of, you know, investment that has uh, this particular kind of security concern attached to it. 
Now, the, the problem, obviously, is what we talked about, it's like it's hard to know exactly what that security risk really is, how much they know, how much they don't know. Uh, so it's very, it's very delicate. But I agree with you in your overall assessment that this does seem to be a little bit of an escalation from where we were even a couple of weeks ago. There are some complicating factors here, because even if the Biden administration was able to kind of push through this idea of TikTok selling to a to a U.S. entity, China has put TikTok's algorithm on its list of like export controls. And so they would have to approve the Chinese government would have to approve that decision to sell. And so that seems like maybe that isn't even possible, potentially. Then there's the political uh, fallout of this, which is people like their TikTok, right? I mean, if, if you're the Biden administration, do you really want to be taking the blame for for removing TikTok from everyone's phone when, you know, everyone's enjoying their unclogging drains channel and uh, suddenly, like, the word comes down for the Biden administration, you can't watch it anymore. What kind of effect is that going to have politically? And then maybe there's a cost-benefit calculus that some some risk of uh, having all of our data stolen is worthwhile if it allows us to enjoy TikTok. I mean, I feel like the administration, like, this, this does call for some type of, like, picture for the American public of what that risk actually is. Right? I, I kind of want the Biden administration, because I am a little naive. We've talked about this before. Like, I actually don't know what the real risk is. Like, I, I kind of want to see what the administration thinks that China is capable of doing with TikTok and the data that it's generating and why that's a bad thing and why we should all agree that we shouldn't be using TikTok. And until I see that, it's, it's very hard for me to get behind this idea because it's, I, don't, I, don't, I can't do the, the risk-reward kind of calculation. I like my golden retriever TikTok uh, videos or whatever they call them. And so I don't want to get rid of those if if I don't have to. But if I if they can make a compelling argument to me that this is a legitimate security, because I'd be happy to get rid of TikTok and any other application that is causing a national security uh, concern. But I, I kind of want to know what it is, or at least get a hint at it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think a little transparency would be helpful here. Yeah. You know, even if it is just the worry about potential future threats, I think that's worth kind of laying out for the American people, at least before there was some push to like ban this thing from phones. It's a pretty aggressive move. It is. It to, is. To, to ban. Yeah. But we have uh, kind of a fun parallel story coming from Russian media that got picked up in Reuters. And this is a story where the Kremlin apparently has told officials that are involved in the presidential election election i'm doing i'm doing air quotes folks election uh that's coming up in in 2024 in russia to not use iphones because of concerns that the devices are vulnerable to western intelligence agencies so this like this is what i'm calling a reverse tiktok marcus i'm hoping that'll stick where you know here there's like it's it's almost like uh paranoia about the um these phones come from america or designed in america and so they're they're somehow suspect but the the best part about this for me is that iphones are like far more secure than every other alternative that's out there and so while it is possible of course that you know western intelligence agencies have access to these phones in some way they they're more likely to get access if if uh, they start using some you know knockoff android phone instead right so it's kind of fun to to see russia saying oh yeah you should stop using this more secure phone because it comes from america and instead use uh, some less secure alternative Correct me if I'm wrong, Jeffrey, but I thought iPhones, I thought the whole point of iPhones was that they were made in China. Like, isn't, isn't this a thing that people like want Apple to stop doing is like stop making these phones in China? Wouldn't, wouldn't the concern be that like because they're made in China, that it would be like Chinese intelligence services that would have access to the data? Like what, what, connect the dots for me. What's, what, are, what are the Russians thinking about the like Western iPhone? Is it just because it's Apple? Is that the idea? Yeah. I mean, Apple isn't, a, you know, it's a global com company, but it's based in, in the U.S., 
So I think that that's the that's the driving concern. It's designed in Cupertino, assembled in China, right? So as as the little label on the back tells you. Okay, I see. So it's merely assembled, assembled in China. Yeah. So so it is. I mean, it's an American phone for all intents and purposes, running American design software, right? And so there, that's where that's where that's coming from. So we had a little listener question. This question is from Mario from Bethesda, Maryland. And Mario. And Mario says, uh, last time you mentioned something, you meaning Marcus, mentioned something about the person first view of the state. I think you were talking about first image view of the state. Ah. And uh, wanted to know about this concept and um, how it's related to the idea of whether or not states themselves can be terrorists. Marcus, you want to take a stab at this question? I'd be happy to take a stab at that question. So I think, and thank you for the question, Mario. I love Bethesda. It's a great town. I think behind the question uh, is really this this sort of broader uh, philosophical issue, I guess one might call it, about what states uh, kind of are and how we should think about them. So, you know, one way to think about states is like, okay, uh, we have uh, Jeff and Marcus are both sitting in the United States. We are individuals. Uh, we have our families. We have our interactions with other people. And we we are sort of engaged in this kind of like fiction that there is this this thing kind of like surrounding us and, and this idea ab above us called the United States. And if you live in Paris, you are sort of part of this fiction that there's this, you know, sort of grouping that uh, is called France. And it's like this actual thing uh, that no one actually knows or, or thinks is a real thing. But it's just kind of an idea. Like you're, you're part of France, you're part of England, you're part of uh, the United States or, or whatever. Uh, but there's no real sort of thing there because it's just merely an idea. You know, it's like we, we got together one day and we said, we're going to be part of something together. And we're going to call this thing the United States or we're going to call this thing France, whatever. Right. So so one view of the state is that it's just really just kind of like this ideational, disaggregated kind of thing comprised of a bunch of people running around uh, doing doing whatever they're doing. But they just happen to sort of all agree that we're part of the United States. And if enough people kind of think that they're part of the United States, then the United States exists, right? And the United States exists because we believe that there's a United States and that people in France believe that there's a France and that people in France believe that there's the United States and so on and so forth, right? But there's another way of thinking about the state, which is that it's a little bit sort of uh, more profound, I think, than that, which is to say states are their own kind of social entities, right? It's not just the case that the state is comprised of, you know, individuals kind of running around doing their thing, but rather states have their own identities, states have their own personalities, and just like individuals, human beings have feelings and beliefs and intentions uh, that shape what their behavior is, states also do as well. So some people uh, make the argument, Alex Went, uh, one of the sort of foremost constructivist uh, scholars, makes the argument that, that essentially Actually, states are people, right, from this perspective, right? Because states have this sort of intentionality uh, that people do. So this, on this view, if you say, you know, the United States is X or, the, or France is Y or, you know, this state is a terrorist, what you're basically saying is this state is operating or acting as an individual would. Right. It has individual uh, beliefs, it has individual feelings, it has individual motivations and intentions that might be sort of terroristic. Right. Um, 
it also is the case that for for constructivists like this, this is an important sort of idea because states develop these identities in relation to one another, right? So, so for example, you know, if you are a, a terrorist state to one country, you could be a, a friend to another, right? So your social identity is not something that's kind of given to you uh, by nature, but rather it comes through social social interaction. So I take the meaning of the question, you know, can we have terrorist states? Uh, to be basically a question about about constructivism, and I think a constructivist would would say, yeah, like identity is important, and from from a relational perspective, it's very easy to see how a state might be viewed um, as a as a terroristic uh, state. One of the best ways to, to think about this, I also think, is through the changing sort of relations of states throughout the 20th century. So if you think about like the relation between France and Germany. France and Germany at, at many times in the 20th century have been viewed as enemies of one another. And now we look at with France and Germany and they're basically friends with one another, right? So the relations are not, again, given by the system or they're not given by, by nature or anything like that. They're, they're comprised and created by the interactions that the states have uh, between, between one another. So that's a great question, Mario. Uh, and, I, and I think that you're thinking about this in the right way. I, I have some, <laughs> some follow-up questions slash concerns, but I'm going to hold those for another for another episode because it's just there's just too much wrong with what you said to to really like get into it now i can't i can't help myself so the the france germany example what does that have to do with the individual at all i mean why why can't the relationships between the states of france and germany just change over time and they still fit into our conception of a state that's what I just said. France and Germany's relationship changes over time. But this was you were trying to like answer a question about how some constructivist about like like individuals and language, Jeffrey. I'm editing all this out. Go ahead. <laughs> um, can you can you tell me what that has to do with with the people side of this? The first image terrorist states. Right. So when you just with a statement that you said, right, France and Germany, right, you you spoke as if these were social entities. You gave them you gave them a, a name. You said this is, you know, France is a friend of Germany or, you know, Israel does this or Iran does this. Or the United States. We're talking as if these states are actual concrete things. And so if they're concrete things, and I think you would agree they are concrete things, they're not just ideas. Then the question is, well, what kinds of things are they? Well, if they have emotion and they have beliefs and they have identities that starts to sound a lot like they're actually individuals. But that, they don't I have didn't bodies. say that emotions, beliefs. What are you like making stuff up? You don't think the United States has emotion? The the state, the United States? No, of yeah. course not. That that's what on September on September 11th, you would not characterize the emotion of the United States as one of sadness. I would characterize the emotion of the people of the United States as one of sadness, but I wouldn't characterize the state of the United States as having emotions. That's weird. How could a state have emotions? It's like a what are you even talking it's, about? What is well, this is this is exactly right. So what is it? You said a state is a and then you trailed off as people often do. <laughs> but what is it then? <laughs> it's a political division. That that's what it is. It's a it's a it's an entity, a political entity that has like let's say a common foreign policy, okay? So so the United States has some policy toward France. That policy can be friendly or unfriendly. But that doesn't mean that the United States is a person with emotions. And I don't think anybody would seriously argue that. Right? I'm seriously arguing it. Yeah, are you no, really? No, is that what that, you're arguing? That, absolutely. That it's, a, it's an entity. 
that it's not just a political entity, but it's a social entity. Is this right? like corporations derives, or people too? Is that the, what you're saying? Well, that's what the Supreme Court has said. I mean, I you know we can we can talk about that one in a second. That's a very interesting story. The Santa Clara Railroad. Uh, I feel like we've talked about that in a previous episode of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Nevertheless, um, right. So if you're going to talk about states as corporate entities, right, as actual like things, which which you have done in this conversation. Then I think it's reasonable to ask, well, what what is that entity? Like, what is that thing? A political? What do you say? A political division with a That's common right. foreign policy? Yes, is what a state is. Mm-hmm. That seems like a poor definition to me. But your your definition is it's a person with feelings, which is I think even weirder. <laughs> My I would proffer that I think September 11th is actually a really good example of this. Right, the state, the United States on September 11th was in shock. The state was feeling emotions of sadness, of surprise, of anxiety, of fear that were not reducible to the individuals in the state, but the state collectively felt that. That's that's my view, right? That the United States felt they had a they had a belief, they had a, an emotion on that day that can be characterized as fearful, anxious, scared, etc., right? Because I think otherwise, if you just reduce it to what you know the individuals are doing on the ground, then the state actually has very little meaning. Then it then it more resembles what I was beginning to talk about, which is like you know, there's this, it's just an idea. It's sort of a fiction. It's just like this thing that we all kind of tacitly agree. There's the United States, you know, but it doesn't really do anything. It's just an idea, you know. And it's, if it's you're just going to reduce it down to individuals running around doing their thing, then then it loses a lot of its sort of entityness, right? I'm more comfortable with the idea that no, like it actually the state is an entity that has very similar attributes to what, what people do. Now, it doesn't have a human body, although it does have borders. Is it conscious? Maybe. Maybe not. I mean, I'm, you know, philosophers have to tell us what consciousness is. <laughs> what is uh, happening But here? certainly, it has a lot of the same characteristics as, as people. <laughs> this is, oh, my gosh. Okay. This is great. Mario, thank you for opening this can of worms. This has been, this has been fantastic. I can't. We got we to gotta move on, friends. Uh, I think, actually, speaking of... Um, you know, questionable humanity. Let's talk about AI for a second. We, we haven't talked about, uh, we haven't done a check-in with our AI friends in in a little bit. And uh, there've been some kind of big changes in terms of the underlying technology of some of the AI tools that are out there. And as this is a continuing interest of this podcast, I just thought we could run through very quickly some of the, the new developments. So as you know, uh, ChatGPT, which we've talked about in the past, has upgraded. So it, we moved from ChatGPT version 3 to ChatGPT version 4, which has a number of improvements in the underlying technology and is giving uh, better answers to a lot of things. We also have Bing, the uh, Microsoft search engine that has a ChatGPT kind of derived component. And what's really interesting about Bing's AI is that it allows you to search the web. It has access to the internet in a way that the kind of uh, chat GPT uh, that's, that's hosted by OpenAI does not. And so you can actually tell Bing, okay, go look something up for me and then summarize it. Um, and it, it kind of opens up a number of new avenues for using the artificial intelligence um, or whatever we're calling this uh, technology. And then the other news today, uh, as we're recording, um, Google released to the public for the first time, to a wider public, uh, their AI tool called Bard. And uh, I gave it a little whirl today. Um, and as I as I do, I tested it out with this, this question. Is there a podcast called Cheap Talk 
about international relations. Good question. Which I think, you know, we want to see how well that's penetrated the, uh, the, the AI. And Bard's response, no, there is no podcast called Cheap Talk about international relations. However, there are a few podcasts that discuss international relations, and it names a couple. These podcasts <laughs> typically, interview, right, typically interview experts on international relations to discuss current events. And I said, I responded. I was like, I thought there was a podcast called Cheap Talk hosted by Marcus Holmes. Can you search the internet to find out? Because I was, I was worried that it wasn't like adequately looking on the internet for, for the answers to these questions. And it said, sure. I've searched the internet and found no evidence of a podcast called Cheap Talk hosted by Marcus Holmes. I've also searched the podcast directories of Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and found no podcast with the title Cheap Talk. I've also searched the social media profiles of Marcus Holmes and found no mention of a podcast, which that checks out. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't publicize this. I ran this query with Bing, and of course, it said, according to web search results, it's Cheap Talk is an international relations podcast with Jeff Kaplan and Marcus Holmes, professors of government. William Mary knows all about the podcast. Um, talked about it just fine. So I went back to Bard. I refreshed. I like uh, opened a new chat. You can do this. You can like kind of close the chat history and start fresh. And I tried again and I said, can you tell me about the Cheap Talk podcast uh, hosted by Jeff Kaplan and Marcus Holmes? And it responded. It said, sure. Cheap Talk is a weekly podcast hosted by Jeff Kaplan and Marcus Holmes. So, so far, so good. Yeah. The show covers a wide range of topics, including current events, politics, sports, and entertainment. Well, uh, stretching nah, sports, nah, not so much. Here's where it goes off the rails, Marcus. The hosts are known for their insightful analysis and their, no, ability, to, <laughs> their ability to make complex topics easy to understand. I think most listeners would agree with that. Cheap Talk has been praised by critics for its high quality production and its entertaining hosts. <laughs> the show was started in 2014 by Jeff Kaplow, a former journalist who worked for CNN and MSNBC. Marcus Holmes is a former political consultant who worked for the Democratic National Committee. The two hosts met while working on a political campaign and decided to start a podcast together. Cheap Talk has been a success with over 100,000 listeners per episode. The show has been featured in The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal. The hosts have also been interviewed on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. If you're looking for a smart and entertaining podcast, Cheap Talk is a great option. The hosts are knowledgeable and insightful, and they always have something interesting to say. Makes me so sad because those things should be true, but alas, <laughs> they are not. Although we're, the, the 2014 bit was kind of kind of funny. Jeff, I, I, I really don't know what to make of this. I mean, I am, I, I am more and more with this AI stuff astounded at these tools' willingness just to make stuff up. Like, yeah. instead of saying, you know what, uh, importer of, the, of this question, I don't know the answer. I could tell you that I scoured the internet and I came up with a couple of things that might be what you're looking for, kind of like Google does, like normal Google, like AI 1.0. Oh, you want to you want to know something about uh, swans? Here are some websites that talk about swans. That's basically what Google does. This thing says I, I look for swans. Swans don't exist, and I'm so clear on that, and I have so much confidence in that. It doesn't give you any sort of sense that it's making this up. I mean, that is incredibly like, irresponsible, number one, but also incredibly scary that this thing is just like proffering information as if it thinks it's true. Now, maybe it does think it's true. This is the scary part, right? Maybe ChatGPT or Bing or Bard or whatever this is is so stupid that it actually thinks that what it's telling you is the truth. And that's why it's so confident. That's why it has so much hubris because it's like, I know the answer. I know cheap talk. I, I, even though I'm not alive, I know what it is. And, and, I, and I know the answer. But it's just so sad. It's so sad. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, 
it's it's interesting. So I, I don't think it's it's a matter of truth so much, right? But it, it's about it's about tuning the or its understanding of truth, right? I think it's about kind of tuning the output so that it's uh, doing the right thing when it comes to like acknowledging what it knows and what it doesn't know. And so you right. can think of it kind of like a, a very advanced autocomplete, right? Like a, a, so when you start typing in Google and you start typing like you know, how do I, and it fills in for you what, what, what it thinks your possible answers might be. I mean, that's really what's going on underneath the hood of these, of these, uh, systems in a much more complex way. And so it's, it's, you know, it knows what words to string together that make sense, but that's its conception of truth. And so these things have to be kind of tuned for accuracy in order to give us more accurate results, but I'm using it the wrong way. You know, fundamentally, I shouldn't be asking it factual questions. I should be asking it questions where a little bit of inaccuracy isn't a problem. Like, help me generate some ideas to do something, right? And then those ideas, you know, I can then vet my own way. They don't have to be about whether this is like a true fact on the internet or not. But it still annoys me that we don't have our, that cheap talk isn't, isn't correctly identified by the service. But if you're not comfortable asking it for factual information, why are you comfortable asking for ideas from it? I, I see it as a useful way to brainstorm, you know, because because there it's not I'm not trying to say, oh, uh, like answer this factual question for me. And now I have an answer and I can go like work with that answer. I'm trying to say. Uh, what are some ways that um, this situation could be resolved or um, that this what's a new direction for this research agenda that I'm working on? And then if it has good ideas, I'm capable of kind of vetting those ideas myself. Right. I can say, oh, that's actually a good idea. Let me think more about that. But if it's something like, you know, does this podcast exist? Right. I mean, that's a better answer for Google right now than it is for Google's Bard service, uh, because it's a, it can it can tell me like, OK, the Internet knows that answer. Um, but somehow the AI isn't quite tied in enough to, to give us okay, the answer. But correct. that but that that implies to me then that if we're only comfortable using this tool for like brainstorming type of, of of exercises, that tremendously limits its usefulness, right? I mean like if if I can't trust it to give it give me factual information. So if I if I go in and I and I ask it, you know, to, to connect to the conversation we we're just having, like uh tell me about why states are people or states aren't people, if that to answer that, it's gonna have to draw on existing scholarship, right? So went stuff, other, you know, constructivists and stuff like that. If it's getting those things factually incorrect or misunderstanding what's going on, like it misunderstood when the podcast was created, for example, then then that's not all that useful to me. So like I'm I'm starting I guess what I'm saying, Jeff, is I'm starting to become a little bit of a skeptic on this uh AI stuff. Like I'm starting to see the the limitations, and those limitations seem to be pretty pretty vast at the moment. Yeah, and I think it's the kind of thing that's going to change, though. I mean, this is so Bard is Google's first kind of public shot at this. Bing is already much better than than this. Right? You know, it correctly answered this question without much trouble. It, it makes its own factual errors at times, but I think this is the kind of thing that like we're going to see pretty dramatic improvement. So I wouldn't get too set in your views on this because it's a it's it's really moving quite rapidly, and you know, it's still both of these services do a great job of writing limericks, which is my primary use for them. Uh, but if you if you want to move on to kind of factual research, then, you know, you're, we're starting to see some daylight between OpenAI and, and ChatGPT and, and Google service. And I'm sure there'll be new entrants into this as well. You know, it, it, it reminds me of uh, to connect to one of our favorite topics on this podcast uh, to chess. And on chess.com, they uh, the other day, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, they unleashed this new sort of bot 
And what was interesting about this bot, and bot is just like a computer that you can play against uh, on, in, in chess. They set it at the very lowest ELO that you could start with, like ELO of like one or 200, whatever the lowest is. Like basically you're just making like random moves on the, on the, on the thing. But they set it to learn. And so it would basically play these games with random people on the internet. And after every game, it would sort of like analyze what happened and realize like what it did wrong or whatever, or what it did right. And within like 48 hours, it got up to like GM level strength because it had learned <laughs> very quickly, like how to play chess. And I played it like in the first couple hours, I played it and beat it. And then the next day I tried it again and it like blew me off the board. Right. So it's like it that kind of thing does speak to the, the computer's ability to kind of learn from mistakes and learn from now chess is a little bit different because it's a it's a the rules are very clear and there's like, you know, it can it can figure out things a little bit more easily than f trying to figure out if a podcast exists. But I think it does speak to the computer's ability or AI more generally to kind of learn. And I use that word, you know, in a, in a kind of thick sense, like not just in like the sort of trivial, like learn, like, oh, I made I made a mistake. Like I should like try not to make that mistake again, but like learn in a much more kind of like profound way, which is to say, like, OK, I know what I don't know. I think that's what's missing at the moment is like the, like the chat GPT thing doesn't know when it's wrong. Like it's just telling you like that the autocomplete, like it's I'm completing the sentence, I'm completing the paragraph or whatever. I, I can't, it doesn't occur to me that I could even be wrong. Right. So once it gets to the point to, to realize like, oh, okay, being wrong is a thing. And then I can have maybe some like confidence intervals or can have like a probabilistic assessment of like how right likely it is that I'm right. Like that kind of thing, I think will start to reduce the level of hubris that we see in these tools. Uh, and just like the, the overall confidence in which it reports back to you, you know, like whatever it thinks is the truth. And Bing, Bing already has like a little slider you can you can play with where you can set it in like more creative mode versus more, oh. you know, I don't know if accurate is the word, but but uh, more where it's just kind of looking up stuff. Um, so they're, they're, those tools were, are starting to be put into use. And I think we're going to see a lot more a lot more attention to kind of tuning for particular purposes like accuracy. So hopefully that that's coming. And I, and I do, just before we end on this topic, I do want to say, like, I do, I, I might have minimized the idea of the brainstorming a little bit, but I do think there is value in that, right? So I think if you think about, like, AI in world politics, like, in the use in a foreign ministry or something like that, if you receive a telegram from somebody and you're trying to decipher it and figure out how to respond, I mean, you can imagine, like, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, if ChatGPT was around, you get this letter from the Soviets, and it's, like, talking about these missiles and what it wants you to do, et cetera, and you feed it into the AI and say, you know, don't tell me what to write necessarily. Don't even don't even write a response. But give me some ideas about how I could respond, right? May, I'm not saying you would come up with the the deal to the, you know missiles in Turkey, but it might give you some ideas about how you respond to uh, the threats that are being made, or another way of understanding what they're saying. That kind of thing, which I think does have some value. So thinking about the brainstorming in, in world politics, it might be that in diplomacy in particular, there are moments where people need a little bit of help to understand, you know, what are the ways that we could respond to this. Yeah, and I think there are, there are potential uses of, of AI when it comes to kind of uh, making sure that your messaging is culturally sensitive, um, where AI might know things about that, that you know, a, a new uh, foreign service officer may not. Um, and so, you know, even crafting the message and, and um, you know, just kind of communicating more effectively could also be a, an area where AI can help. And we, I know we've talked yeah. about We've talked about this in the past, and we'll be coming back to it because I think it's an area of interest for both of us. But before we we let the whole episode go, we should talk about some foreign foreign affairs stuff, some international relations. So, right now, as we are recording, China's President Xi is in Moscow for a state visit with Vladimir Putin. 
There have been speeches. I think the meetings are over. I think it's wrapping um, as we talk. But what, what should we make of this of this me- meeting, Marcus? I think it's really important, uh, and I think it's a really interesting development. So this is the first meeting um, or the first trip by Xi Jinping to Moscow since the invasion last year. So this is a, a sort of monumental thing. Um, it comes on the heels of uh, a bunch of other sort of like visits that we talked about previously. So, you know, Biden going to uh, Kiev and so on. It comes on the heels of this arrest warrant that was issued by uh, the ICC. So it's it's an interesting kind of time when when um, things were, were, you know, have continued not to look great for, for Putin and Russia. And Xi like, comes in and, and has this high profile summit. I think there's two different sort of like ways of thinking about what's going on here. So the first one, it seems to me, is about Russia wanting China to help it help it out. Right. So uh, Russia has been you know, not doing great in this in this war. It needs more reinforcements. It needs more military gear. It needs more weapons. I think Putin is hoping that Xi will provide him with some weapons. I think that's one of the, the things that Putin was hoping to get out of this. Yeah, but just on that point, Marcus, this is something yeah. that, you know, I was kind of reading all the the press to see, was there an announcement along those lines? And they signed like 14 different agreements or something, but none of them had to do with an explicit uh, commitment to provide military equipment or weapons from China to Russia. So I think that's significant right there. Right. So if, if, if I'm right, that that's what Putin was, one of the things Putin was hoping for from this visit, it, it evidently appears that he, he didn't get that. Now it doesn't mean he won't get that. And maybe next week they announce something or they don't announce it or whatever, but it's, it it looks like based on what we've seen so far that there have not been any promises uh, to be made to get the, more weapons. So I think that is that's that's important. I think from China's perspective, it's actually a little bit more more interesting because it seems to me like there's there's a couple of different kind of motivations potentially uh, going on here. The first is that and there's been some reporting in the West, uh, you know, sort of New York Times and things like that, that one of the things Xi might be trying to do is mediate uh, some type of, of settlement, right? That Xi might see himself as um, the person who can, because he has friendly relations with Putin, maybe be in a position to talk to Russia and then maybe talk to Zelensky and the Ukrainians and see if there's any appetite on their end for starting to talk about about some type of settlement. Right. So it could be that one of the things that that Xi is thinking is with the United States seemingly unable to bring an end to this. Maybe this is the opportunity for China to step in and, and play the role that the United States has often played in the past. And be one of the ones to 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 you know mediate some type of peace. I'm highly skeptical that that's going to happen. I'm skeptical that um, Xi uh, has the political capital with the Ukrainians to pull that off. But it wouldn't shock me that you know if he if he tried. Like I, I think if he maybe reached out to the Ukrainians to see if there was any sort of daylight um, to, to to look at here, that could be that could be something that that would not be necessarily surprising to me. I don't think it's going to work, but that might be one of the the motivations here. The other interesting thing about this, too, is, you know, I've been sort of fascinated by the China-Russia relationship because I've, I've thought for a long time that China has been sort of putting up with Russia's behavior and, and doesn't want it to continue. This is an instance where by going to Moscow, it seems like Xi is almost kind of affirming the, the relationship and saying, you know, far from, from me saying, you know, you need to stop this this war, kind of suggesting that they're okay with it, right? And I, I thought for a long time that, that that was not the case because China has been wanting to sort of rebuild its economy 
um, after the COVID situation, particularly with, with trade in, in Western Europe. So I kind of was approaching this, this relationship as one where China was trying to re-engage with Western powers and re-engage, at least economically, uh, uh, with Europe. By going into Moscow and sort of you know, doubling down on the relationship with Russia, it seems harder to do that. Uh, and have those ties with Western Europe. So I, I'm a little bit surprised by the visit for that reason. The last thing I will say, and then I will, I will, I will stop. It's important for analysts in the West to realize that there is a very different way of understanding uh, this war. And I think that the visit sort of highlights that, right? For a lot of the world, they don't look at it necessarily as purely Russian aggression against Ukraine. I think you and I look at it that way. Um, I think a lot of, of analysts in the West look at it that way, but I don't think necessarily that everybody in China, for example, looks at it that way. I don't think it's it's necessarily the case that there there are people in lots of countries that look at this as just you know simply about you know sort of Russian aggression in Ukraine. They have Putin has lots of different arguments for why he invaded. I think some of them are are nonsensical. I think some of them might have you know a little bit of of you know not merit but be explanatory. Um, and so I think it's it's just a useful reminder that there's there is more than one way to look at this, despite the fact that we both have firmly uh, held beliefs about how we should look at it. There's there are others out there looking at the situation completely differently. And I think China understands that um, and can use that to their advantage and realize, you know, look, this is not necessarily something where everybody's going to look at this and think that it's absolutely nuts. And I'm going to Moscow for lots of people in the world. They were looking at that and, and thinking this is absolutely fine. This is what should be should be going on. I think this idea of Xi as a mediator is kind of interesting because we saw another kind of big diplomatic initiative recently, um, uh, just since the last time we we uh, recorded, where China basically brokered an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran to resume diplomatic relations, which is, I mean, these are countries that have not gotten along. Um, and, and so uh, China's involvement here is in that dispute in the Gulf is very interesting. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the analysis of that is around China kind of trying to help open up energy uh, supplies from these countries. And, and, you know, there's a lot in it for China. It's very clear what's in it for China in that kind of a, an agreement. But, you know, maybe it goes to this overall idea of China trying to play uh, more of a prominent role in resolving some disputes around the world and, you know, kind of gathering the, the prestige or status or whatever that, come, that comes from that. To me, the the visit like clearly affirms the relationship, as you were saying, between between China and Russia, and and lends some kind of at least symbolic support to what Russia is doing in Ukraine. You can't go to Moscow and like uh, hang out with Putin and and answer all these questions and and talk about how you're great friends without lending support to what Russia is engaged in in, in Ukraine. But but it doesn't seem like there was a full throated endorsement from China of what Russia is doing in Ukraine, mm. right? Um, and the, the language around the, the invasion is kind of couched in terms of finding a solution, of uh, resolving the conflict. Now, that's code right now for resolving the conflict along the lines of where Russia currently is in in Ukraine, right? So that means kind of recognizing Russia's land grab and, and its kind of annexation of these these parts of Ukraine that are really part of Ukraine, 
so, you know, that's not acceptable to the Ukrainian side or to NATO or whoever's backing uh, Ukraine. But at the same time, it, it's couched in this way, right? It's not it's not like, well, you know, we support Russia's effort to, you know, move further into Ukraine and take over these areas. It's like, no, we seek a, a rapid solution to this conflict and peace, right? I mean, that's what they're saying. Um, and I think the the West is kind of rightly interpreting that as, you know, not the peace that Ukraine wants, the peace that Russia wants. But still, I think it's different than than a full-throated endorsement of the conflict. And so I think China is still trying at least a little bit to to walk this line of uh, offering support to Russia, but still kind of maintaining their view that, you know, they're, they're not necessarily all the way in, in Russia's camp when it comes to these wars of aggression. If we If we start seeing China supplying weaponry, then that's like a, a different kind of a situation altogether. Exactly. That's that's exactly what I was going to say. Like, it, it's one thing to go have the summit, have these meetings, and that's very high profile. And it's quite another to break what has been a pretty long standing sort of uh, Chinese foreign policy um, uh, principle of sort of non-interference. Like, it's that's one of the things that China has, you know, sort of talked about for a long time. And that's one of the reasons actually that what the United States does aggravates them, right? Because they look at the United States and they, they think to themselves, well, the United States like going out and invading these countries and they're setting rules that we don't like and it's sort of interfering uh, with our own sovereignty. China has been very clear, like non-interference is their thing. And so that makes it all the more awkward, as you were, you were pointing out, to on the one hand affirm the relationship with Putin and say we want we want to, you know, be friends or at least, you know, have close relations. And then on the other, they're doing this thing of interference, which goes against everything that the Chinese foreign policy has, has kind of uh, stood for. The other thing we didn't talk about, which I think is kind of interesting, is it's not like the China, you know, China and Russia are not like the best of allies. I mean, they have this relationship that I think has been forged because they share a common concern uh, that's basically the United States and, and sort of right. Western powers. They both agree that we don't like the sort of liberal international order that's been created that's been dominated by the United States. And they think that the United States, you know, on, uh, from their perspective has been unfair and, and this and that. So there's sort of like strange bedfellows in the sense that there's not a whole lot of like trust and, and, you know, great relations between these two countries, but they're in the same position, which is that they don't like what the United States is doing. And so this puts them kind of, kind of together. And so when you watch these, you know, the, the video of Xi and, and Putin, you kind of get the sense of like, Neither one of them is like, you know, particularly, you know, uh, fond of necessarily like the other side, but they're like in this, you know, because they've been sort of pushed into it. They're like, we, we, we both have these same like concerns. And so therefore we're going to cooperate because uh, like the enemy of your enemy is your friend or whatever the thing is. That's kind of the situation that we're in. It's not that these guys have been longstanding allies and have this really deep trusting relationship uh, and they're, and they're sort of like have each other's back. That's not my read of the situation at all. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I mean, this really is driven by, you know, a common enemy in, in the United States or potential adversary right. in the case of China. And, and this idea that, you know, if China can contribute to making life more difficult for the United States in some way, then they're, they're going to take that opportunity. And I, I think that this is, you know, part part and parcel of that of that approach. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of international politics 101, right? I mean, if you if you look at the the international system and, and explain it to, from explanatory terms in terms of like, you know, just 
very uh, uh, crude balance of power. Well, this is exactly what you would expect. You have the United States, which has a lot of power. You have China, which has a lot of power. And Russia, they get together and they try to balance what the United States is doing. Like, so I think you, you don't have to, to have a PhD in international politics to see why Russia and China would, would get together. But it does create this very awkward situation when, when Russia is doing things like invading Ukraine that I don't think that China is, is thrilled with. Yeah, and let me just say, as a public service announcement, there's no situation in which you need a PhD in international politics. And for all Maybe the students listening... Maybe we should do an episode on that, because I actually happen to disagree with you. I think oh. getting a PhD uh, in political science... not let me, let me rephrase. A PhD in international relations, I think, can make a lot of sense under the right conditions. Oh, no way. Yeah, this is, this is horrible advice. Okay, so next it, week we should, t- we should tackle yeah, this. Yeah, if anybody's listening to the this, The 0.001% disregard... uh, listening to this that are considering a PhD in international relations. Yeah, for students in particular, definitely disregard what, what uh, Professor Holmes just said. Uh, Fair enough. So we have, you know, we have this kind of diplomatic entree between China and Russia. And, you know, at the same time, there are some voices in the United States pushing, I think, gently for um, maybe a little more U.S. outreach to Moscow, that may making the argument that maybe the United States should be a little more aggressive in trying to open up a line of communication with with Russia, even at this time when we very clearly have uh, differing views on what's going on in, in Europe. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a tough argument uh, to make, I think, for for a lot of people, right? Because you're basically saying, Look, Russia, if, if you adopt the view that we have that Russia has been the aggressor in this situation, that there was no reason to invade Ukraine, that they didn't have any justification for doing so, um, and they're clearly the sort of, you know, uh, bad apple in all of this. Then we talked about how they got rid of the or they suspended this the, the START Treaty and so on and so forth. It's hard to then say, but you know what do we need? We need more outreach to the Russians. We need to be, you know, a little bit more willing to communicate and maybe even uh, give them something in terms of, of a carrot, you know, in order to, to induce uh, better behavior. So I recognize at the outset that this is a difficult argument to make, but it's also one that I completely agree with. Because I think if you look at the situation with Russia, isolating from them, in my view, is unlikely to make things better. Right. I think at the end of of whatever the end of this war uh, is, I think whatever sort of happens in terms of of the final stages of this, a diplomatic or negotiated settlement is the most likely outcome. And I think that the United States needs to be part of that. Right. I think the United States needs to be helping the Ukrainians to figure out what it is that they're trying to get uh, at the end stages of this and and to help them along. I think it's also important, though, because the United States-Russia relationship is going to continue past this this war, which hopefully will end sooner rather than later. But the United States and Russia are going to continue to be in this situation where we are nuclear states that have a, a, a pretty awful relationship that's rife with distrust and mistrust, and we're going to have to get on in the world. So even in a situation where Ukraine gets resolved, let's say, and hopefully that does happen soon, the United States and Russia aren't going anywhere, and China's not going anywhere either. And so the United States and Russia are going to have to figure out a way to continue to live in, a, in an environment where we want to minimize the chance of, of nuclear mistakes. We want to minimize the chance of having some type of, of misperception, minimize the chance of having some type of conflict that neither side wants. And the way that you deal with that is diplomacy. So while it's very difficult to argue that the United States should be reaching out to, to Russia during this, this period of war where they're the clear aggressor, I think it needs to be done. The last thing I'll say is this doesn't necessarily mean, despite the fact that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a leader guy, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, you know, the summits and, and having the leaders get together. It doesn't have to be happening at that level. 
Diplomacy exists at all kinds of levels and all types of organizations and institutions. It's not just the State Department. It's happening at the World Trade Organization. It's happening at UNESCO. It's happening at, in, at the NPT. Right? There's all kinds of different levels at which diplomacy can take place. So when I say more outreach with Russia, I don't necessarily mean Biden calling up Putin on the phone and talking every week, although I think there would be some benefits to that. But it's talking in general, talking at multiple levels, working on the technical aspects of having a treaty, even if we don't think the nuclear treaty that's going to be restarted uh, anytime soon, to at least be working on it for common cause, because I think there's some evidence to suggest that at lower levels, diplomatic interactions and the positive sort of externalities that are engendered by them can spill over or kind of aggregate or scale up to, to higher levels, right? Again, this is something where it's it's very diffuse. It's hard to pinpoint any type of you know negotiation on this technical topic led to some you know breakthrough at a, at a higher level. It's very difficult to show that. But I do think that the more that the United States and Russia are having interactions, the better we're, we're, we're going to be. The scariest thing for me is when the United States and, and, and Russia are not talking, not engaging, just sort of isolating from one another. I think that's the worst possible outcome. So while there might not be a huge appetite for diplomacy, I really think it is the best path forward. I'll put in the, the show notes a, a really smart piece about this uh, from Rose Gottemuller uh, making this argument in, in the context of Russia's nuclear threats and its abandonment of the New START Treaty, making the argument that we need to have continuing diplomatic interaction to deal with the risk of nuclear escalation and this kind of catastrophic scenarios. And I, I think it's it's you know well done. And I, I agree with what you said. And you know a theme in this podcast, I think we both kind of keep coming back to is is the need to take, keep these lines of communication open in times of crises. That's exactly when you need them. Um, and so we need systems and, and institutions and structures that keep the ability to communicate across lines because otherwise you can have things escalate out of control. And we've seen just in the last uh, week uh, this drone incident in the Black Sea where uh, the U.S. is flying a surveillance drone um, around the Black Sea, as it does keep an eye on things. And uh, we had kind of some harassment of the drone by a couple of uh, Russian fighter pilots, including dumping fuel on the drone. Um, and then ultimately there was a collision that led to the U.S. having to kind of uh, crash the drone into the Black Sea. And the uh, the Russian uh, pilots apparently returned safely, if damaged, to uh, to base. And uh, this was kind of a, a, a fun little diplomatic uh, diplomatic crisis where, you know, the U.S., made an announcement about this, kind of publicly condemned Russia's behavior, calling it, you know, risky and dangerous, and also criticizing the skills of the Russian pilots, which I thought was great. Um, incompetence, I think, was the word that was used by by the U.S. military, followed by Russia denying that this ever happened, which you know what was going to happen next, right? As soon as Russia denies that this ever happened, you know there's somebody sitting in the Pentagon like, Roll the tape, please. Send that tape out. And so then we have this great video released of of uh, Russia doing stupid things uh, around this drone, which, of course, you know, is capturing video the whole time. So um, I think the U.S. enjoyed the opportunity to uh, to kind of throw this video in everybody's face and say, oh, look, Russia's lying again. But at the heart of it, this sort of thing is super dangerous, right? Because we have uh, the potential in the future, you know, maybe the danger was mitigated here by the fact that this is a, an uncrewed drone, right? There's no there's no people in this thing. But uh, if you had a, a crude flight where there were people in the in the in the plane, you know, you could imagine the loss of life here would be like a potentially triggering episode that could lead to, to further escalation. So uh, one kind of interesting thing about this, this crisis was that 
uh, the Secretary of Defense, U.S. Secretary of Defense, announced that he had spoken with his Russian counterpart. This happened very quickly after all of this broke in the news, that that conversation had happened. Uh, not a lot of detail about what was said, but it's, I think, good that that they were able to kind of reach out immediately and have that discussion, because that's the way we're going to kind of tamp down potential um, escalation in the future. It's absolutely good, and it's in contrast to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where you know the United States tried to call China and they didn't, they didn't answer the phone. Right. So this is this is a really important uh, development, and it, it, it heartens it, it heartens me. I am heartened by the yeah, idea yeah. that there are I'm heartened that there are still lines of communication open, and I think it speaks to the the the, the need for more diplomacy. Two other things I want to say about this: the the video footage was as astronomically impressive. I mean, yeah. you see this fighter jet cool. like coming at the drone, yeah. and while the U.S. the other thing I, I thought was kind of hilarious was the U.S. was like. This this the uh, the the fighter pilot the fighter jet pilot like totally incompetent and all that. Russia gave these guys awards like when they got back they were like they're giving them like you know these commendations and awards so like you did a great job of keeping this drone outside of Russian airspace you know so again it's just sort of like the narratives are just so different on on both sides right it's like you know on the one hand the United States is calling this guy incompetent and Russia's giving them awards for their their bravery and their good piloting skills. It's the view of the U.S intelligence community, my, my sense is from the reporting, that this was not an incident of the pilots just deciding to go harass this drone because they came across it, that this is a policy decision, that somebody authorized this at the high level in the Russian Ministry of Defense. And that's, I think, a pretty big deal. And, and it's something we should kind of keep in mind when we think about what this incident means, that Russia is kind of prepared to run the risk of these kinds of things escalating in order to send a signal to the United States in some way. And the U.S., I think, is just as resolved to send a signal by continuing to fly these, these missions, these surveillance missions around the Black Sea, where Russia has claimed it has some kind of emergency you know, zone where people shouldn't fly through, right? But the U.S. is not going to abide by that and is going to take steps to make clear that we are not listening to that to that message from from Russia. And so we're the 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 stage is set here for things kind of spiraling out of control, right? Because mm -hmm. both sides are uh kind of committed to sending a signal through these kinds of interactions. And it, it brings to mind for me uh some debates that we've had in in the political science world about the role of uh weapon systems like drones in leading to conflict onset. And so people who study these kinds of systems you know, are, are constantly asking themselves a question like, do drones make war more or less likely, right? And, and so one question you can, you can ask here is, well, um, you know, because this drone was uncrewed, there were no people in it. Well, that means that this is less likely to escalate, right? So we had a situation where Russia impacts this drone, the drone crashes, there's no loss of life. And so the United States doesn't feel the need to respond in as dramatic a manner as it would had we lost the life or endangered the life of a crew through through this through this incident. So that that's one side of it, right? Is like, okay, well it's it's uncrewed and so maybe there's lower danger for that reason. But on the other side of it, probably Russia wouldn't have done this had it been a crewed aircraft, right? That that Russia would have been much more careful, much more worried about uh, some potential incident leading to leading to escalation and maybe wouldn't have authorized this kind of harassment in the first place had it been a crude mission. And so in that sense, having that drone there 
maybe creates the a scenario where we get escalation where none would have existed otherwise. Maybe the U.S. wouldn't have been willing to run that mission in the first place if it had been a crewed mission. And so we wouldn't even have an aircraft there uh, in the first place to lead to escalation. And so uh, this kind of goes back to a, a, a big debate in, you know, kind of a, a narrow subfield of political science about these questions. Uh, how do these technologies and, and drone technology is only one of many technologies you can ask these these questions about. How do these technologies affect the likelihood of conflict um, by kind of lowering the barrier to doing stuff in the world, right? So we we feel more comfortable sending these missions because we know we're not putting lives at risk. But now at the same time, we have something out there that could lead to some kind of escalation in the future, and we have to kind of weigh the risks and benefits of those decisions. Yeah, and I think in this particular case, it's hard for me to believe that the United States would ever be flying, you know, manned aircraft in or around the Black Sea, right? I mean, that just seems like, given what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, I think that would be uh, way too risky. So I think you're right. I think it's, it's probable that if it weren't for, if we didn't have the drone, we probably wouldn't be doing anything at all. And so the drone might uh, be making it more likely that we see some type of escalation, which is really, really scary. And by the way, I mean, the Russians, you know, they their view here, and they've been, been arguing for a long time, they don't like drones uh, capturing intelligence in in near Crimea, which is exactly where the you know Black Sea. They're they're looking Crimea in 2014. They've been complaining about this for a very long time, and so their their view is uh, the United States is helping the Ukrainians with intelligence, and so they're they're in this war. They're like doing things in this war to help the Ukrainians, and that's not something that they're gonna they're gonna tolerate, right? So I think the the big picture is like you're you're saying this is we worry about this from an escalatory perspective. Um, and the drone technology angle, I think, is super interesting. And it might be that actually escalation is more likely because of unmanned drones, which is a little bit counterintuitive. Yeah, and I think the, the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict in general is providing a lot of interesting evidence about the use of drones in war. Um, and a lot of us are kind of having to rethink some of the assumptions we made uh, going in about the ways that drones have really changed the way warfare is conducted. And so there, there's this kind of big picture question about what do drones mean for the, the likelihood of conflict uh, sparking in the first place? But then there's a whole another set of questions about how drones are actually used once we have hostilities and uh, the way that that Ukraine has kind of manipulated um, low cost drones and turned them into kind of uh, uh, little suicide bombers. Um, that have, have done real damage to Russian forces, I think is interesting and, and it kind of lowers the bar for a certain kind of warfare. Um, and so that's something that military analyst types are, are looking at and, and kind of revising our, our views on. Okay, Marcus, I think we should leave it there. Uh, th thanks so much for joining me today. I had a great time. We, we covered a lot of territory. We, we talked about drones. We talked about diplomacy. We talked about how the United States is a person. We, we covered it all. AI, TikTok. AI, TikTok, ChatGPT, my skepticism of wide-ranging conversation. I can't wait to read the show notes. <laughs> this is, it's great. Please do check out the show notes. And if you have comments or questions, hit us up, cheaptalkpod at gmail.com or go to speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk and leave us a message. Uh, we always appreciate your feedback. And it's, it's nice to point out to Professor Holmes when he was wrong. Mm. Um, but... With that, uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks, Jeff. It's, it's too bad that my favorite phone manufacturer, BlackBerry, does not really exist anymore. Because if you remember back in the old days, that was the secure phone. I mean, right. that's when President Obama like, had his BlackBerry. It was like, locked down. Like, every, you, couldn't, you couldn't penetrate that thing. with any, Nobody was getting into, the, into Obama's BlackBerry. It, it's just since that company 
you know, has not really, they weren't as successful as uh, Apple or some of the other competitors. Android, now, like, we don't have that alternative. It would be nice if there was a, a company out there, and maybe this exists, selling a phone that just was secure uh, uh, from bottom up. Like, just everything about it was just completely secure, and you didn't have to worry about it. That would be nice. BlackBerry was secure in the same way that, like, floppy drives from 1985 are secure. Exactly. They're so old and, like, not even connected to the internet that you couldn't find a way to hack into them, right? So I, I don't know if that's necessarily the most useful uh, approach. But uh, I think also, you know, BlackBerry, a Canadian company, everybody everybody trusts Canada. Isn't they Canadian company or Finnish? Canadian. Canadian. No, they're Canadian. They're yeah, Canadian. Canadian company. They, you know, Nokia is Finnish. And that's why they disappointed me so much when they when they stopped making their phones. Because, I mean, I, I expect the Canadians to do better. Yeah. Unfortunately. There's a there's a BlackBerry movie coming out. I saw a trailer for it. Did you, did you see that? A BlackBerry movie? Yeah. It's a movie based on the BlackBerry story. Um, the... Uh, which looks like see, fun. it's a tragedy because it's. I assume it's a drama, not a comedy. Because I, <laughs> it is a comedy. I, I think. <laughs> if you think about this, BlackBerry. So after after like the Palm Pilot, like when I, I apologize for our listeners who like weren't weren't born yet for this the, these these technological developments. The Palm Pilot used to be this little device that had like a calendar and you could take little notes or whatever. And BlackBerry figured out, I'm going to take that thing and I'm going to connect it to the network, like the, the SMS text network originally before like the internet was really a thing. And I'm going to give it a physical keyboard. And from that moment, that was the moment of genius. They owned the market, owned the smartphone market for several years. The first generation of like smartphones was, was the BlackBerry and they owned it. They, had, they, they, they were a monopoly. They controlled everything and they let it slip. Yeah. And they let it slip, I think, because, you know, the sort of iPod uh, have your music on a device and you could also have that music now be on your phone. BlackBerry never really figured that that part out. You had all these people had their iTunes and their music and Apple was like, hey, I tell you what, what if I give you one device that you could do phone calls, you could get on the Internet and every single music uh, piece of music you've ever bought and is in your library is also going to be on that thing. That was the genius, and, yeah. and BlackBerry just could not. Despite the fact that everybody, I challenge any listener of this podcast to, to, to show me or tell me that having a physical, physical keyboard is not vastly superior to the touchscreen nonsense that Android and Yahweh and Apple have. The physical <laughs> keyboard cannot be beat. Everybody knows it. Even the most hardcore Apple people will admit that. And yet, BlackBerry failed. They weren't able to... To, to stand withstand the competition from these inferior products. That to me is why it's a tragedy. It's not a tragedy that BlackBerry went went under. It's not a tragedy that they were beat. It's that they were beaten by inferior products. I could write a dissertation. I could write a book on a BlackBerry. The physical keyboard, I could actually type. Now on my Android phone, it, it messes every single word I write, it messes up. It gets it guesses wrong. I'm, I'm always fat fingering the various buttons and the, the, the little things and getting the wrong letters. It's a disaster. The BlackBerry had that problem solved and they blew it. Not to mention all the security issues yeah. that they had they had figured out. Yeah. Listeners may not realize this, but it's Marcus's love of the BlackBerry that is, has uh, inspired our Cheap Talk logo, which actually shows a BlackBerry-style phone with uh, with keys. So, Well, the listeners might not appreciate this, uh, but you, you certainly know this, Jeffrey. I was a BlackBerry user until the last day, until literally when the AT&T network turned off BlackBerry <laughs> services. 
I I used it until the very end. It was sad. It was a sad day when it all ended. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, again, the tragedy is they they had they had it won. They were they were the by far away the the leader in the in the industry, and it fell apart. I'm going to put a link to the trailer for this movie in, in the show notes. You should check it out, Marcus. I think this may be that would be great. Yeah. I, I would really like. I would, yeah, thank you for doing that.